to where we're going to be going for today. Um, and it's going to be a little bit different than usual. We're going to still be in Matthew's gospel, which is where we've been for the last year plus. Um, this isn't something that I normally do. I hope that this was meant for you and not just for me. Uh, God kind of took me on a rabbit trail this week. Um, I didn't get past the first two verses of what we were supposed to be in, of 11 verses, because I just picked up on some, it triggered, uh, uh, um, uh, it triggered a thought that there might be some bigger themes that this, these two verses were a microcosm of. And sure enough, it came out to be true in a very um, overt, obvious kind of way, um, and I want to be able to share that with you tonight. And the themes revolve around um, the rhythms of life and ministry for Jesus that you only really can appreciate if you zoom back and kind of take in the whole picture of Matthew's gospel at once. And I think it's particularly going to be beneficial to those of you who are followers of Christ here tonight, who are actively seeking to be a disciple of Jesus's and disciple others. Um, but I hope, nonetheless, that the principles that we're going to unpack and unearth here will be beneficial to anyone who's here, at least in better understanding what Jesus was like and what he calls us to if you are on this journey of seeking to know Christ. So Matthew chapter 15, we were supposed to have been in verses 29 to 39. I didn't get past verse 30. And uh, so we'll just read those two verses together and then we'll um, then I'll unpack what I kind of found and discovered. I don't mean discovered in a new way, probably rediscovered for the millionth time throughout history. You know, nothing is unique under the sun, but uh, it struck a chord with me. So Matthew 15, 29 to 30, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Jesus went on from there there being Tyre and Sidon, where he was interacting last week with the Canaanite woman, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. And I didn't get any further than that, because for whatever reason, I just zoomed in on two particular details initially, um, that fascinated me. And the first of these details were just Matthew's mention. you, you got to understand for a second, okay, you might be thinking, wow, he's going way too in-depth here on particular details. I just have a view that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. And so sometimes when I get excited about little phrases and sentences, it's because I actually believe God has intention behind what he wants to communicate, okay? So I just needed to say that. Some of you might be like, man, he's reading way too much into this. But here's what stuck out to me. First he says, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, period. Then he says, and he went up on a mountain and sat down there, period. Then he talks about how these people came to him, but it doesn't necessarily seem like there's a direct correlation, a direct connection between these two things. It's as if those two first sentences kind of were meant to stand alone and communicate something about who Jesus is prior to the mention of the crowds then coming to him. And I do think Matthew's trying to tell us something here. I think Matthew's is trying to tell us this. That a lot of the times um, these types of incidents occur, like where people come to Jesus, these were not things in his daytimer. These weren't things that he planned out in advance. I don't think he was going into Galilee 
telling everybody, hey, meet me on the hillside at 2 p.m., and that's how the crowds end up showing up. I think Matthew just wants to see in isolation, us to see in isolation Jesus was just spending time with his heavenly Father by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Then he goes up onto a mountainside and he takes in the beautiful vista. He's enjoying creation in this moment. And only then do these people come onto the scene, kind of almost interrupting that moment. I don't mean that from his perspective. I don't think he saw it as an interruption. But from our perspective, it might seem that way. And I think that what Matthew is showing us is this. Whenever Jesus wasn't busy with ministry, Jesus stopped to smell the roses, per se. He was taking it all in. He was enjoying life and creation and communing with his heavenly Father. And then in the midst of that, these people seek him out. And what we see, I think, is that the default for Jesus in his downtime was to seek out soul-reviving activity, that which fed his soul. Usually for him, it was prayer and meditation and quiet and natural settings. And let me just show you how this isn't um, an exception to the rule. This is actually a norm in Matthew's gospel. So for example, in chapter 13, verse 2, we read, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and then great crowds come and gathered about him. Well, what was he doing before that? He was taking a moment to pause and just enjoy and revel in the beauty of, really, his creation that he had made. He was restoring his soul Chapter 14, verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, this being uh, the news of his cousin John the Baptist having just passed away, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard of it, they followed him on foot to the towns. But he was getting away to seek communion with his heavenly father. Chapter 14, verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up onto the mountain by himself to pray. Chapter 15, verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is what we read about last week. So he withdrew for the purpose, in large part, of just getting away for some silence and solitude after this past, uh, after the um, confrontation he just had with the religious leaders. And then, of course, the Canaanite woman comes up, woman comes up to him and asks for his help. Our passage for today, 1529, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And then great crowds come to him. Chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, only then the disciples come to him and ask him a, a question privately. I just hope you see this. Don't lump all this together as if he just happened to be in a place, but his purpose there was ministry. So many times throughout Matthew's gospel, we see Matthew identify particular places and locations that Jesus is just for the sake of being before his heavenly father. And then he ministers when people come to him with need. It's just an important note, uh, important to note this pattern that we see in Jesus' life and the fact that he was so frequently interrupted in these times makes me think that this was just the default for him when he wasn't engaged in ministry, even if it was five minutes here or there because he knew that another need would probably come along momentarily. So that's the first thing that stood out to me. The second thing that stood out to me was this, that the crowds came to him with their needs and not the other way around of Jesus going out and seeking what needs he could minister to. And I thought to myself in that moment, man, it seems like we've seen that phrase a lot. People bring someone to Jesus. People come to Jesus. The Pharisees and and the religious leaders come to confront Jesus. The disciples come to him with questions and so on and so forth. 
So I decided, that's when I decided to step back and take a look at the big picture and the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. And I counted every instance in Matthew of people coming to Jesus and him responding, so others initiating and Jesus responding, versus the times where Jesus initiated and ministers to others. And the results, to me, to me at least, were startling. Because I'll just step aside and say for a moment, I think if I had been pressed with a question of which did Jesus do more, proactively seek out opportunities to minister, or just kind of more receive and be available, and people came to him, I would have said the former. Because I think I'm kind of a product of this culture that we live in which is about filling up our calendars as much as possible and proactively seeking out opportunities to be busy and productive. I just kind of projected that upon Jesus and assumed that that would be true for him. But here's what I found. First of all, the total number of instances I counted of distinct ministry opportunities, whether it was teachings or um, healings that Jesus did or object lessons he set up for his disciples, total number was around 90 throughout the entirety of Matthew's gospel, okay? Of those, the ratio in which Jesus was approached to others, others came to him versus him initiating, two to one. Two-thirds, in other words, of Jesus' ministry was spent responding to unplanned circumstances, unplanned for ministry opportunities. Just a few examples here to give you a sense for the language I was picking up on as we've moved our way through Matthew. Chapter 4, verse 24, so Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and he healed them. Chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Chapter 8, verse 2, when he came down from the mountain, behold, a leper came to him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Chapter 8, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Chapter 8, verse 28, when he came to the other side, two demon-possessed men came out and met him, and they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Chapter 13, verse 36, then he left the crowds and he went into the house, and his disciples came into him and said, explain to us this parable. Chapter 15, verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus, and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's just a handful of 60 different instances in which we see others initiating, others reaching out, others coming to Jesus, and him responding with some kind of ministry. Now, the other portion of these 90 instances of ministry was about 30 times in which we see Jesus being the one to initiate. So, so you can see the distinction here in terms of how I was understanding the difference from what we were reading. Chapter 3, verse 3, for example. Then Jesus came to John in order to be baptized. John didn't come and seek him out. John actually said, John the Baptist, his cousin, said, oh, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Jesus sought him out. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 8, verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left. Chapter 9, verse 9, and Jesus passed on from there. As he passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, and he said to him, follow me. Chapter 10, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits and to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction, and he sends them out. One more, chapter 17, verse 1, and Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up onto the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
These are examples of instances in which we see Jesus initiating with others, Jesus being the one who is proactive to teach or minister to those around him because he has some sort of express purpose or something in particular that he wants to do or to say or a healing that he wants to do. So my question for you up to this point is this. When you think about Jesus' ministry, or even when you think about what you're called to if you're a disciple of Christ here today, what is your understanding of what ministry should look like? Because for Jesus, the lion's share of ministry was being available to respond to needs and questions and situations that naturally arose around him, unsolicited, spontaneously. I think that today, it's so easy to fall into the trap of looking at ministry as the events and the programs and the meetings that we plan, the stuff that actually makes your calendar the formal stuff. But see, these were the exception to the rule for Jesus, percentage-wise. Most of Jesus's ministry unfolded in response to the organic stuff of life that was going on around him. Or let me put it this way, the majority of Jesus's ministry was lived in the margins. Now, here's what I mean by that, because I liked that expression, but then I'm like, well, the thing I think of with a, when I think of margins is you know being in grade school with like the eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper with the you know the blue ruled lines on it and just like an inch of margin around the outside. So shift that analogy for a moment and picture those ruled lines taking up a, a much smaller percentage of the of the space of that page right in the middle. Still there, but much smaller. And then the vast majority of that page now being blank margins on the outside. There's still structure on that page. There's still some things that if you're using those lines will probably appear to be more structured and clear and straightforward, a little bit more planned. But the vast majority of it, blank space. But for Jesus, that was some of the most important. That blank space was actually meant to be filled in. It may not look as neat and tidy as what you're going to actually fill in on those lines in the center, but those margins were significant to Jesus and what it meant to disciple others and to be on mission in ministry. So see the margins, this, these unplanned things of life were seen to Jesus as incredibly valuable as far as ministry opportunities and discipleship go. Now there's a couple ways that we can work against this as 21st century American Christians. We can, number one, fill up our calendar so full that we can't be available for anyone or anything else except for what's already on our calendar. That's, that's one way we can do it, but I don't even think that's the main way we can do it, okay? I think that some of you might be thinking to yourself, but I have so little margin, between work and having to get the kids up and ready and bringing them to and from school and the errands I have to run and the tribe gathering this tonight, I, I basically have between 5 and 6 a.m. if I even get up that early and, and maybe 8 and 9 p.m. at night, but I'm exhausted at that point in time. Where is this margin that you are speaking of? This is what I mean by I don't think it's necessarily just about our calendars and how full they are. I think for some of us, myself included, it's more about a major paradigm shift that needs to take place. See, to minister in the margins might look like being available to your coworkers in the break room while you're at work. It might look like recognizing that a person needs help in a parking lot to jump their car when you're out to run errands. 
It might mean lingering after a tribe, which are our small group gatherings at Terra Nova, because somebody shared very transparently and vulnerably during the tribe, and, and you just stay afterwards to be able to ask them a little bit more about that and pray for them. See, ministering in the margins often means responding to unplanned circumstances that arise in the midst of the things that you've planned, the structured activity of our lives. Do you live with that lens before you? All I want to establish up to this point, and I hope has been clear, is that two-thirds of that which Matthew chooses to feature as Jesus' ministry take place outside of his day planner. They were not planned by him. And I think that that was intentional. All right. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it was a good segue point. So moving on, I want to shift gears now to talk about a couple of my other findings as I kind of did this overarching analysis of Matthew's gospel when it came to the rhythms of Jesus' life and ministry. So all this talk about ministry in the margins and these unplanned moments is not to say, it's not to say Jesus wasn't also proactive and didn't initiate at times as well. These instances are in the minority, as you heard me mention before, 30 of those 90 times, give or take. So about one-third of those occasions. Uh, but there are some important details I want you to see as to how Jesus spent that minority of time in the planned, uh, programmed, if you will, occasions where he was in doing ministry. So of those 30 instances that Jesus initiates, about 20 of those 30, so about two-thirds, are spent with the same group. Who do you think that was? The disciples. How many were in that group? Yeah, just 12. 20 of the 30 in the entire book of Matthew spent with the same group of just 12. If you take away the first few instances where Jesus is initiating or proactive before he'd even called the disciples, and you just look at from the disciples on, it becomes more like three quarters of the time that he spent in intentional proactive ministry was aimed at the same group of 12 people. So we'll come back to that in a moment, but I also want you to hear this. The second most frequent mention in Matthew of ministry that Jesus initiates isn't a specific person. It's not even a, a group of people. It's a theme. Five times, Matthew makes mention of Jesus going to certain regions or locations to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to preach and to teach, sometimes lumped in with that to heal and in most cases, it's not a particular event or occasion that's in view. It's more of an overall mission that was directing and guiding Jesus' decisions at the highest level. And this is, this is why I want you to see this. This is so important uh, because that high-level goal, that mission that Jesus was living with, was informing um, his priorities and his desires moment to moment, both in the proactive things he was doing and initiating as well as in the reactive, those things that were brought upon himself or people who came to him with needs. See, mission is the kind of thing you can't really see. It's an intangible thing, but it's the cause that drives you in everything that you do, okay? Um, for Jesus, the mission was to make disciples through proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. So my question for you, do you have a mission in life? Do you have a mission in life? And what is it? Well, the, the, the obvious answer for most of you is going to be yes, and you're going to know what the Christian mission is. It's going to be very similar to Jesus's. At Terra Nova, we say our mission is to make more and better disciples of Jesus. 
But the fact of the matter is that sometimes it's not about whether we know the mission, it's whether we live with it in view or not. Okay? And to live without our mission in view is kind of like a huge ship without a rudder. Right? It seems significant. It may even be moving about, but it doesn't have a rudder, and so its course has no conviction to it, no resolution to it. It isn't actually going anywhere. And where it is going is probably going to change day to day uh, because of the changing conditions of the waters that it sits upon. Okay, So for time's sake, that's all I want to say about that, but that's really important because almost hidden behind all 90 of these occurrences of Jesus' proactive ministry and reactive ministry is the fact that he had a deep conviction about what his mission was, and that drove him in everything that he did. Okay, that's significant with some of the conclusions I'm going to draw later for us to consider and ponder as Christians, okay? But what I want to come back to now is my observation about how much of Jesus' calculated ministry, his proactive ministry, was spent with just a select few. And here's the principle that I want to point out here. We have a limited capacity as humans in how, narrow and how many people we can go narrow and deep with and truly have an impact on, right? We... We don't need to be dogmatic about the number here, but I actually don't think that 12 is probably that far off. And in terms of a number that realistically you can go deep with and have an impact upon that many people at any one point in time in your life. And I mean that in all areas combined. So your biological family, your church family, and by extension, the other social circles that you're a part of, all together there's probably only 12 people you can really go deep with, give or take. Because listen, Jesus was perfect, yet in his humanity, he knew that he was limited in the degree of impact he could have in terms of going narrow and deep uh, with a certain number of people. And even of those 12, we know that Jesus went even deeper with just three of them in particular. So Jesus goes narrow and deep with a select few, the 12 disciples, in this very intentional proactive ministry, but he lives lives with the kind of margin that makes him available to many even if in a much more limited capacity, okay? So that's a principle to draw from what we see about Jesus' proactive ministry. Most of it was spent on just 12 people. But I want to continue for a moment to look at Jesus' overall discipleship strategy to the 12, um, both with the planned and the unplanned in view. To me, this was some of the most interesting stuff that surfaced. So the disciples are either explicitly or implicitly present for Jesus's ministry for the majority of the encounters in Matthew, the majority of those 90 encounters. There was just a few they missed out on before Jesus called them, and then there was a a handful towards the end when Jesus was on trial before Pilate and Caiaphas where they weren't present for those uh, either. And here's what I want you to understand. Just because Jesus wasn't proactively teaching the disciples or doing an object lesson with them directly doesn't mean he wasn't discipling them. In fact, I think some of the most powerful discipleship that was taking place in their lives was in their observation of Jesus interacting with others as they lived and ministered alongside of him. So I counted the disciples present for about 80 of those 90 occurrences, um, either explicitly or implicitly in Matthew's gospel. Now remember, about 20 of those was Jesus directly initiating with the disciples, his structured ministry. Think of it as like a church program, right? Like he designed something and he was going to teach them and he's the one who initiated. Um, 
So that's about a quarter of Jesus' ministry to disciples, because that leaves 60 of those 80 as unstructured, organic opportunities where the disciples were more observers. Now, some of those 20, um, some of those 60 were, were conversations the disciples initiated, okay, where they actually came to Jesus and asked him questions. But all of it still falls under this umbrella of this more organic, unplanned stuff of life that Jesus hadn't mapped out ahead of time. So here's my point. If, you, if you're not tracking, if I'm throwing too many numbers your way, here's my point. By far, the majority of Jesus' discipleship of the 12 was just life on life, organic, observational. I'm watching how you live your life, how you minister to others, how you respond to the unplanned circumstances of life. 75% of their journey of following after Jesus was that kind of discipleship. And no doubt that was by design. And the implications for us are huge because by far, whether you realize it or not, most of the influence you are having and shaping those around you is organic, is unplanned. Are those people that are close to you who are watching how you respond to the circumstances that are spontaneous that you couldn't have mapped out and planned ahead of time? It's happening all around us, right, all the time. As people are watching you and and how you respond to these things that are happening in life, how you respond to a question from you know, your, your coworkers, or, or how you handle a question that your kids ask you, or uh, how you're dealing with the, the things that you don't expect that are coming up in the margins of your life. Think about the implications for yourself in your various spheres of influence, with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, as husbands or wives if you're married here, with your kids if you have children. Again, 75% of Jesus' discipleship of the 12 was modeling godly living for them either by responding to unplanned circumstances or to unsolicited questions that came his way from the disciples, none of which was in his daytimer. Do you think of life and ministry and discipleship in that way? I think for many Christians today, that's a foreign concept. To think about discipleship on those terms. We tend to guard and value the slots of time that we set aside for planned ministry. And then the temptation is for us to clock out after that uh, and use the rest of the time for ourselves as for rest. Or, or we view time outside of structured ministry as not nearly as effective. That's not really going to bring about maturity or growth or change in the people's lives I'm trying to influence. Listen, no one here would probably say that, right? But do our actions and our lives betray that reality for ourselves? We tend to put our best energies into our calendar commitments, the things that we initiate, that we see as most important, and then we have no gas left in the tank for when our neighbor randomly shows up at our door or our our kid asks us a a question right before they're going to bed that's deeply theological. How many of us have been in that situation? Um, Or when you get the inconvenient text from your friend late at night about a need that they have. Now, what I'm not saying is this means that we we just disband all planned activities. Jesus didn't. I hope you hear that. I'm just talking about percentages and ratios. He didn't do that. If we did that, we wouldn't be gathering here. We wouldn't have had the Poema Ministry event yesterday. Like, we wouldn't do those kind of things. That's not what I'm saying. But what it does mean is we may need to cultivate in our hearts, in our minds, a paradigm shift in our life 
as to where the majority of discipleship should be taking place. So here's what I want to do. As I, uh, as I thought through all this, I tried to distill down everything I just said, because I'm still working through it all, into five key takeaways. So if you're lost at this point, hopefully it will become, you'll be found after I share with, these, share with you these five key takeaways from everything I've unpacked for you. Number one, we see from Matthew's gospel that Jesus lived with margin and that margin made him available to others. See, for Jesus, discipleship wasn't primarily about filling up his day planner with activity. We see, in fact, that more often than not, Jesus lets ministry come to him. I think, by the way, that just reveals a deep trust in the sovereignty of God to arrange the circumstances, people, and needs that Jesus, that were most important for Jesus to meet. And don't see Jesus waiting for people to come to him as a passive and lazy thing necessarily because when they came, he was ready for it. We always see him respond with great passion and wisdom and authority. You might say that Jesus planned for the unplanned. He ordered his life so that there was margin because the margin, he understood, was where most of the ministry occurred. Okay, number two, in Jesus' downtime, he prioritized communion with his father. See, in the interim, when Jesus wasn't occupied with some ministry need that came his way, he's often seen seeking spiritual rest and recreation and restoration through time with his heavenly father. The default of Jesus' downtime, even if it was five minutes he could get here or there, was to stop and smell the roses in ways that refreshed his soul. And because of this, subsequent ministry needs that came his way weren't seen by him as interruptions, but as an opportunity that was placed before him by God. Okay? Number three, Jesus never lost sight of the mission. It was pervasive throughout all of his ministry, whether it was on the the proactive side or the reactive side. The fact that the majority of ministry occurrences in Matthew are initiated by others does not mean Jesus was wandering about aimlessly without a purpose. He had a very clear purpose in mind with everything that he did, which was to make disciples through proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom, and he never loses sight of that mission. That's a part of the reason, that's a part of the way, by the way, you can live such an organic, carefree life, is if you have a crystal clear mission in mind that you're living before you on a daily basis. Fourthly, Jesus invested deeply in a select few. Where Jesus is seen initiating the ministry, the majority of it is with the same group of people, the 12 disciples, and he's okay with that. I think, I think that just reflects our human limitations, and even that is something that we're meant to model our own lives and discipleship after, discipling after. And then fifthly, Jesus understood discipleship is as much or maybe even more about observation as it is formal education. See, only a small fraction of the disciples' training was formal and planned by Jesus. 75% of it was organic and observational, which tells us that perhaps the greatest impact in the spiritual formation of the people we care about, our family and our friends and our other relationships, is not in what we plan for, but in how we respond to what we didn't plan for. Because that's where most of it happened for Jesus and his disciples. So here's where it gets practical for you guys, and there's some take-home, uh, take-home assignments for you to consider this week in light of these principles. Number one, and these questions will be on the screen behind me too, 
what's the default of your downtime? And how might that need to change? If you just had five minutes to yourself, maybe you're driving the car or during one of the kids' naps or you're sitting in a doctor's office or you're waiting at the checkout line, what thing could most helpfully serve to restore your soul in those few moments? What does it look like for you to stop and smell the roses? What scripture could you dwell on? Truth could you dwell on? What are some of the um, areas of gratitude you could practice that you're, you so easily forget but are true that would help to reset your perspective in those moments? Secondly, what's your mission? And I know you know what the mission is, so how can you then personalize that to yourself? If the great mission of... Uh, us as disciples is to make more and better disciples or is to know God and to make him known. How can you personalize that for yourself given the, the, the context that you live within, the people that you have in your lives, the personality that you have, the gifts that God has given you? How can you personalize that mission? And then, this is so important, guys, how can you do a better job of keeping that mission as a lens you live with before you? Because I know you all know the mission. But how can you keep that mission before you at all times? Thirdly, who are those 12, give or take, in your life that you're called to go narrow and deep with? All right, if you're limited in who you can go narrow and deep with, as Jesus did with his disciples, spend time this week thinking about who are those people? And then don't feel guilty about prioritizing time with them. I think that's okay, especially if that's what the Son of God had to do. At the same time, how do you overall need to view a life of ministry differently? This is the fourth question. What do you currently place more value on? The planned event or the organic moments that never make your calendar? And then what practical steps can you take to be more available for the needs that arise in the margins of your life? And remember, this isn't as much a time thing or a strategy thing, strategy thing as it is a, a mentality. So that's a tough one. But that's a really important question, I think, for us all to press into this week. I encourage those of you who are here who are part of a tribe or tribe leaders, I think this is going to be great fodder for some really productive conversation. I don't think these principles can actually be worked out effectively um, outside of the context of community and talking about these things together. So I really want to encourage you to prioritize um, the meat of the principles we've unpacked today and some of these questions in your next tribe gathering. Um, so in close, let me just say this. Jesus lived out some patterns for life and ministry that we've seen today that are countercultural and honestly that are counterintuitive as well. But we know that to be a disciple is to follow after and imitate Jesus even in these kinds of rhythms. This isn't unique to Jesus because he's the son of God. These are things that we are meant to imitate too. And I pray we will be able to um, because honestly, guys, I believe that I don't know if some of you feel that these principles actually may be burdensome, overwhelming, too much for you, but I trust and believe that when we live into these principles that Jesus lived out, it's actually gonna be the place you find the most freedom and joy. So let's pray to that end. Would you join me? Father, first, I just want to claim the promise that Jesus made to his disciples before he left them, saying it would be better that he go than that he stay with them and remain physically. As we talk about Jesus' limitation on earth, we know that he's not limited in heaven. 
And we know that by him having gone, the reason it was better is that he sent his Holy Spirit now to dwell and be within, within us. You are with us. You walk with us. In one sense, you are closer to us and with us in this journey that we're on, even than you were on earth with your disciples. And we thank you for that. Help us to believe that, hide that truth in our heart. Father, we confess the places that we've been too quick to compartmentalize life into ministry versus non-ministry. And we marvel at the same time at Jesus' availability in all the instances of those who came to him with great need. And again, we thank you, Father, that his earthly example showcases something that is true about you now, which is your willingness and availability to us whenever we come to you with a need. There are people here today who need to hear that. And I think of that picture of the father with open arms welcoming the prodigal son home. That's a picture of you and your willingness to receive us when we come to you with need. We give you thanks for that. Father, please renew our minds and help us to see all of life as an opportunity to walk with you and to showcase your sacrificial love to those around us. Whether that's in Bible studies or break rooms, whether that's in the events that we plan or the unforeseen circumstances that we don't, that catch us off guard. We are yours. Our lives are yours. And your son has promised us that when we take his yoke upon ourselves, we will find it to be easy and his burden to be light. Father, we are, we are not our own as we seek to follow you as uh, your disciples. And so help us to live into that truth today. And Holy Spirit, impress on us the reminder um, that you are with us, that we are not alone, that you are walking with us as closely or closer than you were with those first disciples. And empower us then to do the work that you did in pointing others to you to your great love, to your great sacrifice, which we now turn to and celebrate with communion. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.